Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg. With your host, psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark and co-host Debbie Nash, Living Well with Dr. Peg explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics. Brought to you by SSI Guardian, Living Well with Dr. Peg shares effective and practical psychological strategies based on biblical principles for living well. To learn more about the show or Dr. Peg's mental health consulting and publishing services, visit drpegradio.com. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Listeners, I'm psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and I'm blessed to be here with you today for this episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg. Living Well with Dr. Peg is brought to you by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions and faith-based and professional organizations. You can listen to Living Well with Dr. Peg every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 FM KRKS broadcasting from Aurora, Colorado, and streaming online around the world at 947krks.com. And technology is so wonderful. You can listen not only on your radio, but from your computer and even on your smartphone with the KRKS or TuneIn app. And I like to listen to KRKS on my smartphone when I'm at the gym, so we can take it with us wherever we want to go. Well, my co-host Debbie Nash is not able to be here today, but I'm thrilled to have my guest, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, on the phone from Los Angeles to help us explore our topic today, which is coping with anxiety disorders. Everything you always wanted to know about anxiety, but were afraid to ask. But before I introduce Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, let me share with you some testimonies from individuals suffering from anxiety disorders. Now, these are stories not only of debilitating anxiety, but one reason we're talking about this topic today is because there's there are stories of hope and overcoming their their disorders to live full and purposeful lives. So we don't want to leave you just feeling even worse about all the symptoms that we're going to be describing. I want you to stay with us for the full hour because there is hope, there is help, and our guest, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, is going to share with us where that help comes from. So these stories are taken from Anxiety and Depression Association of America's website, which is ADAA.org. And the first story is by a gentleman named Rob Fisher. And Rob writes, the summer before my senior year in college, my mother died of lung cancer at the age of 57. I dealt with my loss privately as I had handled most of my problems throughout my adolescence. I repressed my grief and kept moving. I avoided talking about my mother's death, and I continued my college work and social schedule as if nothing had happened. But some six months later, my repressed feelings showed physical manifestation. I developed ulcer-like symptoms and a fear of being in group settings, particularly for meals. I also came to fear feeling nauseated in public and having to leave in a panic. The more I forced myself to stay, the greater my anxiety and perceived pain. Frequently, I delayed eating until I could be in a safe environment, and over time, I became a wayfish, 155 pounds on a 6'2 frame. Well, Rob goes on to say he was diagnosed with panic disorder and agoraphobia, and um, his symptoms were very real, and he discovered that he was not alone. And he said, the most ironic of disorders, here I was, someone who had enjoyed groups and events with a promising career involving frequent interpersonal interaction ahead of me, but hamstrung with a phobia that caused me to detest groups, 
particularly functions involving a meal. And another story is from a woman named Holly who had generalized anxiety disorder was diagnosed, and she had panic attacks for over two decades. Uh, And she said the first attack she had occurred in the seventh grade, and she was nauseous and shaky and confused. And so her mother, um, having dealt with her father's bipolar disorder, insisted that she get some help. And she said um, the symptoms sounded like hypoglycemia, and the doctor just told her to take better care of herself. And so she started just feeling very ashamed and having the nagging fear that people would think her attacks were all in her head. So she decided to hide her symptoms from even her closest friends and family. And you'll see that as we go through the program today, that's a theme, just uh, the anxiety that people suffer from over decades, and they suffer in silence and shame. And and Holly goes on to say that her life changed when her son was also diagnosed uh, with with an anxiety disorder, and she finally was able to get the help they both needed from a psychiatrist. And so she just talks about the hope that she experienced as she learned more about anxiety disorders and all the different therapies that are available. And so I want to just encourage you all as you're listening to the program today to know that there is help and there is hope, and our guest today knows a lot about anxiety disorders and treating them effectively. And my guest is Dr. Michelle Cooley Strickland, an award-winning licensed psychologist, professor, research wife, and mother. And Dr. Michelle is currently a research psychologist in the Center for Culture for Health, excuse me, Culture and Health, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences in the Department of excuse me, in the School of Medicine at University of California, Los Angeles, or UCLA as we all know it. She's also concurrently an associate professor in the Department of Mental Health, the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. And Dr. Michelle specializes in treating and researching anxiety disorders among youth, families, and adults. And Dr. Michelle believes that each client possesses inherent strengths, yet may benefit from the expertise of a competent and engaging therapist who demands action and accountability in assisting clients in becoming their best selves. So, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, thank you for being with us, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Other than that huge introduction, <laughs> hey, Dr. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I wanted to um, share all of that because I just so respect and admire you, and you, you have accomplished so much in your professional life, but it's not just for the sake of a resume and accolades. You really take your research and apply it to the benefit of real people in the community, don't you? Yes, because, I mean, I got into anxiety disorders because of my own experience with anxiety, and I wanted to really understand myself and improve the lives of others because I know what it's like to live with, uh, struggle with anxiety and not let it overwhelm. Uh, and so using a research base really helps to guide the field rather than people just speculating. Using hard data, I think, really moves the field and then applies it to uh, real healthy living. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a good balance between science and practical application. We don't want to get so caught up in, in the science that we don't use it to benefit others. And then we don't want to 
help others with just kind of hearsay and kind of home remedies. <laughs> and uh, here, right. here at Living Well with Dr. Pegg, we're using uh, the Bible and what God says is true as as our evidence. And one of the things I've kind of concluded as I look at um, evidence-based psychology is a little slogan I came up with is, all good psychology is God psychology. It turns out, and we as believers shouldn't be surprised, that what psychologists say is true and evidence-based, we can always find it backed up in the Word. Right, right, if it's really true. If it's really true, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so Holly and Rob's stories that I led with, just a little snippet from their own words, um, these stories aren't rare, are they? No, they're, 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 they're some of the extreme stories, but they're not rare. And anxiety disorders are one of the most common types of disorders that there are if, you t- if you're thinking about mental health. So they're very prominent. I think in terms of your, your, your listener and audience, it's more um, there'll be variants of some of that. And everybody, like I kind of introduced why I'm interested in anxiety disorders and why I've, I've committed my career to it, it's because everybody, every human living thing um, experiences some type of anxiety or and or fear. Mm-hmm. So we can all relate to their, those two um, examples that you gave in a, in a small sense. Um, but really, what is it that affects most Americans and what makes it um, a disorder versus just a normal part of being a, a, a living being? Yeah, and so... Um we encounter things every day, all day, that make us nervous. You know, we have that common language in our lexicon. I'm feeling nervous. I've got butterflies in my stomach. I'm feeling anxious. Um, that happens to all of us every day, probably. So how do we differentiate between everyday anxiety and actual anxiety disorders? So, for example, you know you've got a, a lot, uh, some um, heavy oral surgery coming up at the dentist. And a lot of people don't like going to the dentist because they fear uh, the pain that they're anticipating they're going to experience. So uh, you're anticipating that for several days prior to your visit, having trouble sleeping, maybe butterflies in your stomach. Does that mean you have an anxiety disorder? No, it means you're normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, thankfully, in defense of the dental industry, uh, <laughs> they've gotten better at being uh, uh, less pain-evoking, but they still, uh, you know, there's still the possibility of, of some kind of uh, injury or, or a pain. So anxiety is that possible threat. It's um, this kind of vague but overwhelming feeling um, of apprehension and uneasiness that something isn't right, that something might go awry. Uh, your mind is telling you that there's a problem some, from some type of unknown but possible threat. Mm. Uh, and so when you're thinking, oh, I've got that dental appointment, um, I wonder if it's going to hurt. So you're thinking, okay, um, you know, it could hurt uh, versus you're at the, um, at the dentist and the, the needle, you can see that excessively long needle <laughs> and you, you fear the pain that's associated with that needle um, or that they tell you you're going to get a root canal without any Novocaine. Um, that's a real fear. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between anxiety and fear. Fear is known and a known and definite threat there's a real and immediate danger you know there is that that movie clear and present danger so when you think of that that's that's actually fear anxiety is the possible threat um so 
we all experience from time to time that um, that overwhelming but um, but vague fear. Um, and anxiety isn't the result of a specific threat, but it comes from your mind's own vision of the possible dangers that may result. And there are a lot of uncomfortable physical symptoms that come with that anxiety, um, and some of these physical symptoms include headaches, um, just general muscle pain and tension, not being able to sleep, sleeping too much, too little, um, a lot of general body tension, mm-hmm. particularly I know I feel it in my neck and my jaw. Um, I, speaking of the dentist, my dentist just made me get a um, night guard <laughs> in avoiding it, but she's like, you, you clench and you tense your jaw. I, I thought I had TMJ at one point. Um, you have test, chest pain, ringing or pulsing in your ears, lots of uh, excessive sweating. I told you I suffered from anxiety. Um, we'll talk about social uh, anxiety, too, but I, I thought when I was in high school that I had some kind of overactive um, uh, underarm sweat glands, and I asked my mom to take me to the to the pediatrician to get some medicine for it, but really, it turned out that I was socially anxious, and mm. that's why I had overactive uh, sweat glands. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Michelle, we're going to go ahead and take a break here in a moment and hear more about those signs and symptoms You're living well. You're listening to Living Well. You are living well. And you're listening to Living Well with Dr. Pegg. One needs to look no further than today's headlines to understand the threats facing American schools. They remain soft targets for violent threats, and yet our schools go largely underprepared. Our children deserve the highest level of education in the safest learning environment possible. The SSI Guardian QAL, or Quick Action Lockdown, is the fastest and safest way to lock down a classroom. This revolutionary device provides schools with maximum locking protection while meeting all safety, fire, and building codes. Designed by the leading lock experts in the world, the QAL is the only lock that meets Department of Homeland Security primer recommendations. SSI Guardian QAL now makes classroom lockdowns fast and safe with the red button. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the best classroom protection. Take action today by calling SSI Guardian at 877-878-5800 or go to guardianprotect.com. That's guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Pegg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, everyone. I'm psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, here with my co-host. I'm sorry, my co-host is not here today. I'm reading my notes. Debbie Nash is out today. But thankfully, we've got our wonderful guest licensed psychologist and expert on anxiety, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland. And thank you so much, so much, Dr. Michelle, for being with us. Uh, we left off in our first segment talking about the, the difference between everyday anxiety and a diagnosable anxiety disorder and the difference between real fear, something, say, a grizzly bear is coming after you when you're out hiking. That's real fear. But anxiety, uh, Dr. Michelle, you explained, is a little bit more vague um, there's that, that unknown that something possibly could happen and it becomes overwhelming, even though it's not a real, as you said, clear and present danger. That's correct. That's correct. So there are a slew of uh, possible anxiety disorders, um, and some people feel, fall neatly into a category. Some people are just experience a one-time event that is really intense but doesn't recur. 
so one of those types of, uh, we call those panic attacks, when, when there's an abrupt, completely, seemingly out of the blue, intense fear or discomfort that um, is really, it seems like it's going on forever, but in reality, it's just a few minutes before it peaks, uh, and uh, we call those panic attacks. So they're, they're, very, they're very discreet episodes. Um, a person might have one in their entire life, but they have to have, for it to be a panic attack, it has to have at least four of these symptoms, like pounding heart, um, accelerated heart rate, sweating, trembling, shaking, feeling like they're choking, chest pain, discomfort, feeling uh, like they're smothering or have a shortness of breath, a stomach or upset diarrhea, um, feeling dizzy, lightheaded, like they might faint, uh, chills or numbness, or feeling like things aren't real. We call that derealization or a feeling like they're detached from themselves. Mm -hmm. That's what we call depersonalization. Um, or just feeling that they're going crazy or might die. Mm -hmm. So those are typical symptoms of what we might ha call a panic attack. Um, I've had one. I'll talk about mine. Have mm -hmm. you had any? You know, Michelle, when you said kind of that feeling of unreal and lightheadedness mm -hmm. and kind of tingliness, I've had that experience before where I felt like I was almost going to faint, but I never yeah. actually had a panic attack. But tell me about what happened to you. So thank God I was in graduate school and knew what I was experiencing because mm. it could have um, escalated. I was taking a, an exam in graduate school, and I had studied my patootie off. Mm -hmm. So I knew I was going to do really, really well. And uh, I'm in the middle of the exam, and I look up. I was about a third of the way through the exam, and I knew I must have had so much time left. And I look up, and there's like such a tiny amount of time. I had spent so much time giving such detailed responses that the time escaped me, and I looked and I saw I had three-fourths of the exam left and very little time. So my heart started racing. Mm. My, uh, my heart was pounding. I got sick to my stomach right away. I felt like I had to go to the bathroom and, yeah, stay in the bathroom. And so I didn't know what to do. I looked up, and he wasn't the nicest of professors. So I went to him and said, I have to go to the bathroom, because I did. I went in the bathroom. Then that used more time. <laughs> I get back, and I said, I said to him, I actually, I, I'm running out of time, but I know everything. And so it was, it was horrendous. Mm. It was horrendous. But thankfully, I knew what was happening after the fact. I realized, okay, let's just keep this in perspective, because... What panic disorder is, is having one of those out-of-the-blue attacks, but having no understanding of what it is. A lot of times people run to the emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack um, or that something is physically, like they have some kind of thyroid disease or, or cancer or something else, when in fact it's panic disorder. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a panic attack. So the fear of having more and more of those attacks is what we call panic disorder. Mm -hmm. So you see the difference between the attack, which is those, that onslaught of physical feelings um, from out of the blue, and then the panic disorder is being afraid of having more attacks. Right. And, and let me share some, some examples that I've experienced that I've observed, uh, especially when I was teaching. I was a psychology professor for many years, and yeah. very regularly, um, surprisingly, and I think it was because, Dr. Michelle, I knew what to look for. I, I knew what I was seeing. I would either have a student who would very abruptly leave my class, kind of like what you're describing happened to you, or I would see a student sitting in the hallway 
trembling, uh, looking pale, looking like a deer stuck in the headlights, their head mm-hmm. between their knees. And because I recognized what I thought might be going on, I always asked, are you okay? Can I help you? And you'd be surprised how many people just walk by someone when they see them in that state. But I would ask them what's going on. Some of them would say, I'm having a panic attack because they did, they had been diagnosed. They recognized what was happening. They had their own strategies to kind of pull themselves together. But on several occasions when I said, are you okay? Can I help you? They didn't know what was going on. All they were aware of is all those symptoms you just described, the heart palpitations, the stomach ache, the nausea, lightheadedness, feeling like they were going crazy. And they would express that to me. I don't know what's going on. I feel like I'm going crazy. I think I'm going to die. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. And so is it advisable to when someone doesn't know what's going on, call 911? Because all of those symptoms you described sound like they could be a medical emergency. And perhaps it's a panic attack, but what if it's not? And certainly that fear, that what if, kind of feeds the anxiety. So would it be advisable if someone doesn't know what's happening to them to call 911? Certainly, certainly. Thankfully, 2016, uh, there's more overlap in training in terms of what's a mental health issue Mm -hmm. and what's a physical health issue. So more and more emergency rooms, the 911 operators, are more familiar with what the potential, what the overlap is. Mm and in assessing that. But you cannot gamble on your health because, yes, it could be, it could be a, a heart attack or it could be a thyroid problem. Uh, but after a thorough assessment, then the conclusion is, you know, there's nothing that we can find that's uh, physically wrong. Are you a lot, under a lot of stress? Because the, the, the stressors the level of stress that you're under and your body's ability to, to process that stress makes it more likely or less likely that you're going to have another one. Mm-hmm. So it don't wait. Don't wait. And what happens besides, besides the panic disorder, people develop the panic disorder, they can also develop agoraphobia. Right. And, Michelle, Dr. Michelle, what I recall um, from my time in graduate school is something called anticipatory avoidance that in, in terms of the fear that you talked about, that fear of having another panic attack, what was that? Could this happen again? What would happen, um, you know, if I'm asking my boss for a raise and all of a sudden I have one of these panic attacks again? Or what happens if when I'm driving, all of a sudden I have another attack? People do start to avoid um, those activities as they're anticipating the distress that they experienced previously. Is that part of agoraphobia? Bingo. Exactly. They start minimizing their their outdoor, out of home, mm. out of their safety zone activities. So we all have people in our families or know somebody who says, oh, well, she just doesn't get out anymore. Uh, and uh, typically those are your, the people we would diagnose as agoraphobic. Mm-hmm. Um, they avoid public places where they might feel an immediate escape might be difficult like uh, large pl- open places like sh- uh, shopping shopping malls or getting on public transportation or, I mean, I don't like crowds, but it's not because I'm afraid I might not be able to escape. But the, the fear for people who have agoraphobia is that they might not be able to escape if it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And there about um, one in three people with panic disorder develop agoraphobia. Wow. Yeah. So it's 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 really debilitating because the worlds become smaller. They are they're very codependent. They have to go with people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
to accompany them who are kind of safety folks. Some people have, like, carry around something that makes them feel better. Um, and uh, But they, they develop this kind of fixed route or um, that they're comfortable with, like they might go to one specific grocery store and then back, um, but it's difficult for them to travel beyond that safety zone. Yeah. You know, when I lived in Hampton, Virginia, you know, we have the Hampton Roads Bridge Tunnel. You're from Virginia. And yeah. um, I noticed, you know, there'd be times where clearly the, the traffic was beach traffic, people heading out to Virginia Beach through the, through the bridge tunnel. But there were times where you'd get through the tunnel and see on the other end there was nothing going on. And um, I was a therapist at the time, and I'd occasionally have clients who would come in and say, yeah, I was driving <laughs> through the bridge tunnel, and I just panicked. I freaked out, and I almost came to a complete halt. And, um, you know, traffic backed up behind me. And I wondered how often might that happen, that someone's driving through that bridge tunnel, they just freak out, they have maybe their first panic attack ever. And so then that anxiety about driving in that situation again gets uh, generalized and extended to just driving in general. And the more anxious they become about driving, the more anxious they become about leaving the house altogether. And before you know, as you're describing, they're just really not going out or they need someone to accompany them. And really, that, that, that's that dividing line, wouldn't it uh, be, where it's starting to now impact their lives. It's affecting their ability to function and go to work and socialize. Right. It's not just this isolated thing anymore that happened one time a couple months ago. Right. Yeah. Right. So and that's what throws it into a, a disorder, a level of disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got so much else left to talk about. Uh, we're, when we come back, we're going to talk about um, uh, obsessive compulsive, compulsive disorder, OCD, and uh, phobias. And um, I'm sure as our listeners are, are hearing what you're saying, they might be recognizing themselves or people that they know. And so stay with us. You're going to get some information on those disorders. And again, don't go away because we're going to give you hope. We're going to give you help. You're listening to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. And my guest today is licensed psychologist and anxiety expert, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland. Our topic is coping with anxiety disorders. Uh, you're going to hear from our sponsor during the break, SSI Guardian. And when we come back, we'll take a closer look at phobias and OCD. With SRN News, I'm Ron DeRockstra. The European Union wants a quickie divorce now that Britain's voted to end its 43-year membership in the 28-nation bloc. Senior EU politicians are demanding that the U.K. cut ties quickly to limit the political and economic shockwaves from Thursday's referendum. Meanwhile, a British opposition lawmaker says Parliament should stop the madness and overturn the results of the referendum, calling for Britain to leave. Labor legislator David Lammy says Thursday's national vote was non-binding. West Virginia's governor is asking federal authorities for a major disaster declaration to help the three counties in the state hit hardest by the flooding. Some 23 people have, been, have died because of the high water. And the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission taking over the investigation into what happened to a boat to a Florida family that was sailing in the Gulf of Mexico. Two bodies were recovered, two still missing. This is SRN News. Two of the
the greatest concerns that most Americans have, especially as they grow older, are their health and their financial well-being. America's Wellness Clinic is dedicated to providing sensible health care solutions and practical wealth-building strategies. Medicare's annual wellness visit is the flagship of the clinic's health-related services. They pay 100% for the visit with zero copay. America's Wellness Clinic also offers Beamer Technology, an application that boosts circulation, regenerative abilities for injuries, and increases mental acuity. And America's Wellness Clinic provides a simple test that reveals which prescription drugs will work best for you. And what about your financial well-being? America's Wellness Clinic provides continuous seminars and information about reverse mortgages, insurance, tax and estate planning, long-term care, housing transitions, and alternative investments. Let America's Wellness Clinic provide you with sensible health and wealth solutions. Call 303-985-4604 or visit them online at americaswellnessclinic.com. What is the true definition of marriage and why does it matter? Jim Daly explores the answer in his new book, Marriage Done Right, One Man, One Woman. I believe that God's design is clear and it's not something that changes at the whim of culture or by the hand of any government. With touching real stories of enduring marriages, Marriage Done Right reveals why God's original plan remains rock solid. For more information, go to krks.com and enter keyword marriage. This is Steve Replin, and I'd like to share a secret. No great business has ever succeeded without a great team. As a lawyer, a CPA, and a lender, I've advised more than 4,000 growing businesses just like yours. My system of fast-track business coaching integrates all of my skills for your business growth. To schedule a complimentary one-hour conversation to see how we can get your business on the fast track to growth, call me at 303-322-7919. That's 303-322-7919. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. Welcome back, everybody. I'm psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark, and you're listening to Living Well with Dr. Peg. My guest today is licensed psychologist and expert on anxiety disorders, Dr. Michelle Cooley Strickland. Michelle, thank you for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Dr. Pegg. And we are talking about anxiety, everything you always wanted to know about anxiety, but were afraid to ask. And so we just finished talking about uh, panic attacks, panic disorder, agoraphobia, people who are now becoming afraid to go out, afraid that they may not be able to escape or they'll be in crowds or embarrass themselves. Um, agoraphobia sounds like phobia. Um, let's talk a little bit about phobias. That's a type of anxiety disorder. And um, you've been good about self-disclosing a little bit about your experiences with anxiety, Dr. Michelle. And so I have um, embarrassed myself at, on, on more than one occasion. I've been found by my colleagues standing on my desk screaming because there was a mouse <laughs> in my <laughs> office and my office was on um, the Highline Canal Trail in Aurora, and my the back door to the office kind of led right out to the trail. So a lot of wooded areas, a lot of snakes and critters and coyotes and foxes kind of live back there. And so little field mice, they weren't very big, um, and they would kind of mash themselves under the, the door and kind of get into our office when the weather started turning cold outside. And they were really tiny. When I was a little girl, I used to have hamsters, and my brother had a little, you know, mouse in a cage. 
And so they're tiny like that, but something about them kind of, you know, roaming around my office totally freaked me out. And um, just the thought of knowing one might be in there, I could barely function. I, I wouldn't go into my office if one had been sighted in there. And so um, I haven't worked at that college in four years, uh, but when I run into people, they still kind of tease me about it. And we know that anxiety disorders are no laughing matter. I can laugh at myself because it's kind of, you know, I have a phobia of mice. But again, going back to your, your definition or criteria, what really is that dividing line is how does it affect your ability to function? Am I in so much distress that I'm avoiding even going to work because there might be a mouse there? So can you tell us exactly what is a phobia and specifically phobic disorder where it really isn't just me kind of, you know, afraid of a mouse, but it really is interfering with my ability to function. Well, Dr. Pegg, you pretty much did it for me um, in terms of describing the elements that make just a a fear different from a phobia because they have to have some kind of debilitating life alteration. So if you had resigned your job, Mm. that would have been... Uh, you really would have needed to get some treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had in our anxiety disorders clinic uh, a patient who, when I was in Charleston, South Carolina, she was a head resident and was going to resign her job Mm. in Charleston because of her fear of cockroaches. Mm. So uh, Charleston is in the low country, and there were more than average numbers of uh, these cockroaches, and I was deathly afraid of being assigned to treat her myself because in terms of behavioral treatment, which is extraordinarily effective, it ha- it, it's very effective, but in one type of behavioral treatment, it's called exposure therapy, and you have to expose the person to whatever it is that they are most fearful of, and then they become acclimated to it and realize so those irrational fears that drive that phobia because phobias are must be irrationally based okay we all can't be afraid i mean we have to naturally be afraid of things that will harm us or else we won't survive but it's the irrational fears that we have to help our patients cope with so it's okay to be afraid of a big giant sewer rat or a dangerous spider that might save your life yeah that's not irrational okay so me on me on my desk with a little tiny field mice mouse is that irrational i mean (laughs) it's it's a bit overblown (laughs) but um i'm sure other people in your office wanted to stand on the desk because they just (laughs) didn't like it but it didn't stop you you didn't quit your job. I mean, when I've worked with people with different types of phobias, they really were taking, uh, I've had uh, like one of my social anxiety disorder patients, he was taking um, less paying jobs, declining offers of promotion just because he was so anxiety ridden about the potential of what he would be mm-hmm. having to do if he had taken the advancement. And this is and he was about to be fired because he he declined these promotions over so many years. Right. And, and so doc- that's what propelled him into treatment. Yeah. And Dr. Michelle, you're hitting on an important kind of phrase there is that what if thinking, that fear of the unknown, the what if 
it, whether it happens or not, whether it's likely to happen or not, that can really be debilitating and really um, trigger that anxiety. In my book, Do Something Different for a Change, I write a lot about uh, the fear of change, but I'm hearing some overlap there. You know, change is scary because of that fear of the unknown, the fear of the unfamiliar, and that what-if thinking that fuels our anxiety and often leads to self-condemnation, leads to paralysis, and as you said, kind of leads us to make decisions that are counterproductive for ourselves. Correct, correct. And it feeds itself. Like, mm-hmm. anxiety is just this, this hungry, insatiable mm-hmm. monster. Mm-hmm. Because it feeds off itself, it makes you feel worse. I will talk about that later, mm-hmm. but it, it is this huge, insatiable monster. Wow. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But the, the thoughts that drive these phobias about you on the table or this, uh, this patient that I had about, I'll be embarrassed if I mess up. I'm so afraid. So in social anxiety disorder, people are fearful of being uh, doing something that will make them embarrassed, mm. that people might laugh at them about, that people will think that they're stupid uh, about. So that's what the fear is. And so then the behavior is I'm going to avoid putting myself um, speaking in front of others or getting up on stage or singing in front of folks. Um, or even going to a cocktail party, or I'll get drunk, and that'll make it easier Mm. for me to go to the cocktail party, or I'll take, you know, a Xanax before I give this speech, and then I'll be able to do it. So it's it's that general fear of what if, and that's what's the difference in these different types of phobias. The um, specific phobia is the fear of the mouse or fear of the bridge, as we talked about last segment, um, about the bridge, it's not the bridge itself, but the potential that the bridge might crash mm-hmm. while I'm on it. Um, here in L.A., it's the overpasses. Like, I'm, fr- I'm afraid to get on an overpass because what if we have a 7.0 mm. earthquake? Yeah. That's not me, but I do have a flashing thought. I think that's the worst place to be <laughs> if you were to have a huge earthquake. Um, but in terms of OCD, that's uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, that focuses the obsessions are the thoughts that are overwhelming about and uncontrollable about something irrational, but they feel powerless to stop those thoughts. The compulsions are behaviors that are driven or these type of ritualistic behaviors that people spend too much time on um, to kind of, kind of counter those thoughts. Oh, if I if I do this ten times, if I wash my hands for ten times, that'll undo the potential thought that, that I have that my mom might hurt herself. So you have these irrational fear, these irrational thoughts uh, of something uh, catastrophic that might happen, uh, and then the rituals, these compulsions are kind of behavioral kind of made up stories of what we might do to keep the bad thing from happening. Mm-hmm. So I've I've um, known people who would check and recheck and um, whether it's the stove or, you know, even the lights. I, I had a client once who would just keep flicking the lights on and off because he just couldn't be sure that the switch was all the way down, even though he saw the light was off. 
and he just felt compelled, you know, there's that word compulsion in obsessive compulsive disorder, he felt compelled to do that. Uh, he also um, felt compelled to wash his hands over and over and over again. He was a, a prep uh, cook in a restaurant, and so, you know, he'd get flour on his hands and batter and grease or whatever, then he had to just keep washing and washing and washing, which is fine. We want people who prepare our foods in restaurants to have clean hands. But he did it to such an extent that it was his hands would become raw and they would bleed. And so some of that was just the fear of contamination. But it sounds right. like sometimes the ritual is used to almost contain anxiety or an obsessive thought that really might be unrelated to contamination. They might have some other... You know, like you said, fear that my mother might die if I don't wash my hands a hundred times in this ritualistic way. Right. So, so a lot of time, a lot of times, not always, that the ritual is is some kind of comes out of some kind of magical thinking mm. about the obsession. Mm-hmm. So the the ritual kind of binds up that anxiety. So he's he doesn't want to have the kind of um, what is it, Chipotle outbreak? Mm. So, with the with the you know people getting sick, having eaten his food, so he wants to make sure that he has washed away any germs. Um, but what started out as a kind of healthy behavior just got out of hand. So he, oh, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Um, so that he uh, had, but he doesn't have control. He. If you asked him, you probably would find the number of times, the number of soapings, how long he has to, maybe he sang a certain song and that um, told him, okay, that that's, now it's safe, um, that he that he's now done washing. Oh, but he touched the, the, the meat, uh, raw meat, so he has to go back and wash it again and do that same ritual. And you mentioned that he flicked the lights on and off a bunch of, uh, you know, just kept flipping them, flicking them off and on, they're probably associated with those flicks. He probably was counting. I've got to flick ten times unless I have that thought again. Then I have to go back and start again. Um, we had a patient who... And Dr. Uh, Michelle, I'm going to ask you to hold that story till after our break. We're about to uh, go into um, uh, a word from our sponsor, SSI Guardian. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at uh, treatments for anxiety disorders, how you can help your friends and loved ones. We'll hear uh, the rest of the story that our guest, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, is sharing with us, licensed clinical psychologist and anxiety expert. You're listening to Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Schools can no longer afford not to invest in a professional, evidence-based, advanced safety education training program. It's the single most important decision and investment a school administrator will ever make in their professional career. When all else fails, training and preparation are the only things that will increase your chances of survival in a violent incident, such as an active shooter or active terrorism. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based, advanced training programs tailored to your needs. While there are many basic training programs largely based on opinion and emotion, SSI 
Sky Guardian is the only advanced training program of its type with an accredited continuing education unit or CEU issued by an accredited university. SSI Guardian has set the new standard in advanced safety education by providing evidence-based advanced training and solutions to learning institutions, faith-based and professional organizations. To learn more, call SSI Guardian today at 877-878-5800 or visit guardianprotect.com. To learn more about living well with Dr. Peg, visit drpegradio.com. And now, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, and you are listening to Living Well with Dr. Peg. We're talking with licensed psychologist and expert on anxiety disorders, Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland. Dr. Michelle, thank you for sharing such good information with us about panic disorders, phobias, obsessive-compulsive disorder, also what we call OCD. And we're going to talk about uh, treatments in a moment, but I want to hear uh, the rest of um, the story that you were sharing with us before we uh, talk about, well, what do you do about all these um, disorders? Sure. Well, this guy was afraid that every bump in the road when he would drive he actually had hit someone. Mm. So he would have to stop his car, get out, and look behind him to see that he didn't hit anyone. And so think about how debilitating that was. Oh, I have to think, I think about it personally when I think, did I leave the garage door open? Did I? And I think about that guy because he helps me stay in perspective. Look, Michelle, you do the same ritual. Don't go back unless you have some compelling, compelling reason. But we all have those kinds of experiences of, oh, whoops, did I do that? Maybe I should go back and check. Mm -hmm. And what causes it to be at the disorder level is when we can't, when it takes hours and we keep doing it and we can't control what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And and in those cases, or it becomes overwhelming where the symptoms of the anxiety, the overwhelming physical symptoms become uh, overwhelming or it causes us to not do things that we would like to do with our family, our friends, our jobs, our our our, our faith. Right. Uh, so that's when it's a disorder. Right. And so you know why this show is so important is because a little bit of knowledge helps you to recognize when you catch yourself in those patterns. I had an issue myself, Dr. Michelle, with the garage door, and I just kept thinking I had left the garage door open. I'd get to the corner and say, have this nagging feeling, oh, my God, did I leave that door open? And I've had several bikes stolen. The garage leads right into the house. So, you know, there's a good reason to make sure it's locked. And so I'd go back, and, of course, the garage door was, was closed. I can't think of a time that I ever actually came back and it was actually open. Uh, but I'd get further and further away from home and just keep feeling like, ah, oh, I think I left that door open. And yeah. so it got to the point because I had the knowledge that I have, and I'm hoping our listeners are gaining that same knowledge today, I made up my mind that if I keep giving into this nagging feeling at what you called that hungry, insatiable monster, yeah. that I was going to become a slave to this worry and this yeah. behavior that I, I'd be, start being late for work. I'd start, you know, just not wanting to leave at all because you know, maybe I left the garage open. So I made up my mind, okay, I'm going to have to risk getting my bike stolen, my house broken into, even with thinking I left the stove on, I'm going to have to risk my house burning down. That's the, that's a good price to pay to not become a slave to this obsessive, anxious worry. Yeah, very good. Very good. So how, what are the, if we can do that for ourselves, that's great. I was able to kind of get over that fear 
And now I kind of just tell myself, okay, did I close the garage door? I kind of, in my mind, just say, okay, garage door closed. And I know I have the same routine every day, even if I don't remember doing it. Most likely I was on autopilot and I did it anyway. So when yeah. those strategies don't work, what, what can a professional do to help us overcome uh, this debilitating anxiety, OCD, panic, agoraphobia, et cetera? First of all, put a label on it. Mm. I think it helps people when they know that I'm not alone. Think about uh, some of those students you talked about previously about how some of them had no clue what was going on with themselves versus those who did and could develop strategies for it. Um, the, the example I gave about the panic attack I had in, in uh, grad school, I knew what it was. I could label it. It helped me contain it mm-hmm. because what's um, approaching a professional and saying, I don't know what's going on. Let me tell you all that I am experiencing physically with my thoughts um, and my worries. Uh, and so you p- please help me find out. Just put a label on it. What is going on with me? And then that way you can address what the problem is. Because remember, we also talked about potentially some of these symptoms mimic uh, a real uh, some no. other type of physical mm-hmm. health disorder. So we need to understand what is going on with us. Right. And that's the first step. And Dr. Michelle, I think having a label for something, and I'm not a big fan of labeling and pigeonholing and stereotyping, but doesn't a label in this case, when people are perhaps suffering for decades, like Rob and Holly, the stories I read at the beginning of the program, suffering for decades and you don't know what's going on with you, a doctor gives you a label and that implies there's a name for this. That means I'm not the only one. I'm not some weird, strange person. Other people must have this condition that there's a name for it. And if there's a name for it that the doctor knows about, there must be something that can be done about it. Right, right. And with anxiety disorders, this if you are ever diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, you should say hip, hip, hooray. Mm-hmm. It's better. It's Why is that? Better. Pardon? Why is Why? that? Mm-hmm. Because it's very treatable. Good, good. It's very treatable. Sometimes in a very short, I mean, there are cases of single treatment mm. um, cures. Wow. And so that some of that, it, it, the issue is whether you're willing to do the work. Mm-hmm. Because I've had clients who I knew I could help very readily, but they weren't re- willing to do the work. And that's the difference between kind of a passive uh, therapeutic approach and more active dynamic ones. Well, I'm not going to say dynamic, more active approaches. Mm-hmm. So a behavioral therapist working with uh, a uh, person with an anxiety disorder is going to have you change your behavior. It's going to be challenging in the sense that first, one of the first steps is to do an assessment of exactly what it is that's causing your anxiety, what's causing um, you to experience this distress, because each one of us, even though we have overlaps in types of symptoms, what each of our anxiety disorders, whether it's a phobia um, or the different types of anxiety problems, is unique. So what drove my panic disorder, what drove my social anxiety uh, disorder, is different from what drove your panic disorder. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Um, Michelle, with behavioral approaches, you can't just sit back and be passive, which is often what a lot of us want to do. We all want change, but we're not always willing to make changes. We all want something different, but we're not always willing to 
do something different because it's going right. to require some work. And I write about this in my book, Do Something Different for a Change. And so in your experience, once you get the person who's ready for change, they can have some quick results. So what would be the different types of interventions that you would use, um, behavioral techniques, in, and also, because I know our listeners are interested, medication. And I know you're not a psychiatrist, but if you can briefly just talk about some of those interventions and a little bit on medication, we just have a couple minutes left. Sure. So a behaviorist is going to do that analysis, a behavioral analysis about what's driving the, the anxiety uh, that you're experience, experiencing and then build pretty much a fear hierarchy. What's the least of, of this particular thing that's bothering you? What's the least? And build up in kind of a step, uh, stepwise progression to the most absolute hugest thing that you're fe- fearful of. So you could either and address that from the top at the absolute fear or start at the bottom with baby steps. With kids and adolescents, pretty much baby steps. With full-grown healthy adults, you start at the top because the quicker you get to the top to address that and face that fear, the more likely it is um, to go quickly. And uh, then with that's behavioral. The focus is specifically on the behavior. So you have to do something to address that fear, to counter that fear. Mm-hmm. With cognitive behavioral, which is also extraordinarily uh, effective, it's also about your thoughts. So your thoughts drive your feelings, which drive your behaviors. So you're going to address those thoughts. The Feeling Good book by Dr. Burns is an excellent, it's an old school but and cheap. Um, you can get it off uh, a used copy, but that helps you think about your thoughts. It's designed for depression, but those same types of thoughts drive the anxiety, uh, and so I think that's very helpful for listeners to right. learn. And I know look, another another great book, Dr. Michelle, before you talk a little bit about medications, is the Holy Bible. <laughs> In terms of cog- cognitive behavioral therapy and addressing our thoughts, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear The Bible says be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we can have the mind of Christ. We should demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive. Make it obedient to Christ. Sounds like cognitive behavioral therapy to me, huh? Honestly, dating over 2,000 years. So go to the good book. Matthew 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 are one of my favorites. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your Mm -hmm. life what you will eat or drink about or about your body, what you will wear. Uh, and so can any of one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Just at Sunday school, teaching the kids that this past weekend. Yeah, amen. So Matthew six twenty-five to 34. Wonderful um, counsel. You're not being faithful stewards when we worry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Michelle, we just have about 30 seconds. Tell the listeners the value of medication. There are a lot of believers who don't want to even see a psychiatrist, psychologist. What can you share with them just in a few seconds to encourage them that that is a viable option? It is. There are anxiolytics, uh, anti-anxiety medications um, that are very effective, particularly for specific fear. So if you have a a, a, a general specific fear and you're about giving public speeches, maybe you could take one before Xanax, Valium, um, before, and, but those are kind of, yeah, so those are prescribed through a psychiatrist. All right, so um, they, they're, they're real valuable. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you off. Oh, Dr. Sure. Michelle Cooley-Strickland, we'll have to have you back on to talk Please. about 
anxiety disorders, treatment using medications, and cognitive behavioral therapies. But again, we know a wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ, who gives us all kinds of words that we can use and meditate on to help us to be anxious for nothing. My guest today has been Dr. Michelle Cooley-Strickland. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. This episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg is brought to you by SSI Guardian. Tune in every Saturday at 1 o'clock on 94.7 KRKS and go to drpegradio.com to learn more about me, the show, and our sponsor. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Living Well with Dr. Peg. Living Well with Dr. Peg is brought to you by SSI Guardian, who has set the new standard in advanced safety education. If you'd like to learn more about the show, our sponsor, or mental health consulting and publishing services, visit www.drpegradio.com. Remember to join us every Saturday at 1 p.m. on 94.7 KRKS-FM for Living Well with Dr. Peg.